Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. In the last days of Annalise Michelle's life, she looked more dead than alive, emaciated, face sunken in, sharp cheekbones protruding from gray, pallid skin, teeth chipped from recently biting a hole in a wall, extremely dark black circles around once beautiful and hopeful eyes. This previously attractive young German college student was only 23 years old, and now she looked closer to 60. She should have been graduating, joining the workforce, dating, enjoying her youth, She should have been figuring out what she was going to do with her long and happy life. Instead, she'd been undergoing multiple exorcism rituals uh, a week for nearly a full year. She was bedridden and weighed less than 70 pounds. And it's not like she was three feet tall. I actually couldn't find a single reference to exactly how tall she was. But based on numerous photos, I'd have to say around 5'4", 5'5". And based on photos of Annalise when she was healthy, I'd put her weight around a, a very fit 110, maybe even 115, 120. But now in the last days of her life, she is a skeleton with rice paper thin skin. She looked like a demon. She looked frightened, ethereal. She looked like she had become the personification of torment itself. She lost 40 to 50 pounds off of an already thin frame. That's what happens when you skip the food pyramid and instead exist on a diet of spiders, flies, and your own urine licked up off the floor. Seriously. For a time, this was all she would eat or drink speaking like a demon as she did so. Despite her emaciated physique, she possessed in moments an unnatural, almost superhuman strength. She destroyed rosaries, crucifixes, holy pictures. One squeezed an apple with one hand until it burst. Another time, she threw her sister across the room as if she were a ragdoll. And Annalise still possessed enough energy to speak slash bark at the priests around her in an inhuman and terrifying voice. Man, I do not like that. That does not sound good at all. Uh, Annalise would die on July 1st, 1976. The official cause of death, malnutrition and dehydration. 
But what caused this recently fairly healthy young woman to refuse to eat in the first place? Mental illness? She'd seen a plethora of doctors, none of whom had been able to help her. Brain scans showed nothing physically abnormal with her mind. So what was happening? Was she simply suffering from a mental illness local doctors just weren't knowledgeable enough to identify and treat? Or, or was this something else entirely that was afflicting her? Something not of this world, something dead, something evil. We set the stage for both scientific and spiritual possibilities in this part one of a two-part paranormal horror suck today on a dark and disturbing edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Friday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. Senior Suck Master Supreme. A.K.A. Sergeant Suckmaster, A.K.A. Prophet of Nimrod. And you, indoctrinated drinker of that sweet sauce known as the Cult of the Curious, you are listening to Time Suck, the 20th bonus episode. Long ago, at the beginning of this podcast, I made a deal uh, with you listeners to do a bonus episode for every 100 iTunes reviews, or iTunes reviews, and now I owe you beautiful bastards uh, 13 more bonus episodes and counting. One every three weeks is the most I can kick out. And so we have another uh, Friday bonus uh, bonus episode uh, coming every three weeks for at least the next 39 weeks. At that rate, uh, you know, or at the rate you review, excuse me, pretty soon we're going to have them coming uh, for like over a year out in front of us. I, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate the reviews so much. The most recent review, as I write this, written by iTunes user uh, Middle-Aged White Woman, I <laughs> love that, as a subject of Bojangles Dance for Me. And she writes, my 12-year-old puppy just passed away. I will name the next furry love of my life Bojangles, the Danimal. Uh, well, middle-aged white woman, uh, thank you for the five-star rating. So sorry to hear about the passing of your puppy. Uh, I've been there. It's never fun. Uh, when the time is right and you get a new fur baby, I, I will be honored to hear that the name Bojangles will be post- bestowed upon him. And, and I'm certain he will be a mighty snuggle warrior. Uh, thank you for your continued support, for continually spreading the suck. Thanks thanks to all of you for your ratings, reviews, subscriptions. Keeps Time Suck up in the comedy charts where future suckers can find it and be brought into the little fun fold we got here. Uh, okay, we've been heavy uh, on a, or kind of on a heavy religious theme the past few sucks. Unintentional, just it just works out that way. I remember a while back we were on like a medieval Europe one just unintentionally for a while. But, but since it has worked out that way, uh, it felt right today to throw a bone to our awesome uh, non-religious suckers as well. One of our very own time suckers, John Bonner, uh, is a board member of the Nashville, Tennessee chapter of the Atheist Alliance, helping the homeless, bandages, mouthwash, body powder, first aid kits, toothbrushes, hand sanitizer, gloves, tents, hoodies, and more that might not make much of a difference in your day-to-day life but could make a huge difference to somebody else's is what they uh, kind of, you know, uh, help help the homeless get, help the people who need to get. Lindsay and I actually bought some backpacks and tents uh, for the homeless out in Nashville. Sometimes a little help is all someone needs to get back on their feet. You know, one couple, after getting some assistance from this organization, was able to scrape up enough money to purchase a small rundown car, get into Section 8 housing, and they're no longer on the street. So it's the te- Nashville, Tennessee, chapter of Atheist Alliance, one of 17 chapters in different cities. They have a Facebook page. Uh, it's Facebook, facebook.com uh, slash A-A-H-H-N-A-S-H, and their Amazon wish list is pinned to the top of that page. And I'll put links in the episode description to make it way easier. Uh, so, the, yes, and, and the Amazon you know, wish list is obviously uh, where you do the uh, shopping to get those tents and other accessories I, I referenced. Um, thank you, thank you, John, for showing up at the uh, Zany Show last week, by the way. John's awesome. He's a space lizard. And more importantly, 
He's just doing a lot of uh, good work right now. He's currently working on writing grants to get the government funding needed to start a reintegration program for the homeless. The program will take in these folks, work with them on health, legal, addiction, psychological issues, give them life and job skills, you know, to eventually get them back uh, on their feet and into their own place. And again, there's a lot of kick-ass, uh, amazing religious charities out there uh, that are helping the less fortunate as well. So thankful that they exist. Uh, but I think a lot of people um, don't realize there are also non-religious charities sometimes. You know, so if you like, if you've allowed a, a theological bias to maybe get in the way of helping the less fortunate, you know, get what they need to survive. Well, now you don't have an excuse. Also, do not feel bad if you don't have the dough to donate. That's not what this is about. Uh, or if this just isn't your charity, don't feel bad. But if, but it is a great charity. And if you do donate, Nimrod will be most pleased. Hail Nimrod. So thanks to all of you time suckers uh, as well uh, who have been scooping up the new Danger Brain Design stickers and vinyl decals. Those have been flying off, flying off the proverbial shelves, spreading that suck. Man, Danger Brain, Danger Brain, Danger Brain. I love saying the name of the official suck designers. You know, if Michael motherfucking McDonald, I keep forgetting, not in love anymore. If he's the bar to the suck, right, you know, then they're the they're like the sucks Leonardo da Vinci. Actually, there's two of them, two designers, Sebastian and Alfonso. So they're like the Leonardo da Vinci and the Michelangelo of Time Suck. And I'm not talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And as long as they're in stock, you're going to get a free sticker pack with every order of $30 or more. And Danger Brain recently collaborated with a Time Suck fan who sent in some fan art to make a new uh, limited edition Time Suck product that, I, that I'll tell you about in a little bit. I'm not going to tell you about it now. And you'll understand why I didn't tell you about it now uh, when you hear it. Uh, ticket sales, looking dynamite for Salt Lake City tonight and tomorrow. Tomorrow night's already uh, sold out early show. And uh, by the time you hear this, it looks like uh, the, the early show t- tonight may also be sold out. Very excited for those shows. Hope you can get some tickets uh, if you can make it to the late shows. San Francisco Punchline coming up in less than a week, April 25th to 28th. Time Suckers filling those up as well. Get out there. Get out there. I'm excited to see you Bay Area motherfucking Time Suckers. Next up uh, is a live Time Suck podcast in Spokane, May 6th, Sunday night. Going to be sucking a real Northwest piece of shit. Gary Ridgeway, Green River Killer. Space Lizards voted in him uh, for the first topic uh, of the month in May, the first Monday topic. And uh, the rest of you Time Suckers will hear the studio version of Green River Gary on May 7th. Space Lizards will, will hear the live version as well. It's part of that membership. And then it's the Sacramento Punchline, May 10th to the 12th. Tempe, Arizona, Phoenix, May 31st to the uh, June 3rd. So many solid venues, not a shithole in the bunch. More tour dates coming up. Uh, uh, they're at dancummins.tv. Kick-ass original song, making fun of the Westboro Baptist Church, written performed by musician Time Sucker Larry Hooper in today's Time Sucker updates. Bonus episode twenty: the demonic possession of Annalise Michelle, part one of two. Right, damn now. Be gone, Lucifina. All right, Time Suckers, who are we talking about today? Well, the unfortunate star of this suck is Anna Elizabeth Michelle, a religious woman in her early 20s who went to Mass twice a week was studying at the University of Würzburg, one of the oldest institutions of higher learning in Germany, having been founded in 1402 and situated, as you would expect, in Würzburg, Germany, a city of roughly 124,000 people, over 50,000 of whom work at the Würzburg Frankfurt Factorium. That's the world's largest sausage factory and distribution center. Over 10 million tons of bratwurst alone pumped out every year. Annalise was studying essentially to become a slaughterhouse quality control technician with a focus on ways to make the execution process uh, less painful for both calves and young hogs. To make quality bratwurst, uh, you can't let the animals live more than two years. And 
you know, while they were trying to uh, make the execution process specifically less painful, they did need their lives to be somewhat painful because uh, the sadder and more fearful animals are, the better they taste. That's been scientifically proven. And that's why uh, all young pigs and calves uh, at this uh, Frankfurt factorium were forced to watch their parents get killed. And then they did something very unique here. They would they would make the young animals wear a mask made out of the skin of their parents' faces for the rest of their short lives, uh, which were spent in, 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 uh, trapped in small cages, uh, not big enough to let them stand up. So sadness plus fear equals flavor. I'm sorry if you don't like that. And I'm going to stop now before the few of you still listening uh, <laughs> also hit the stop and unsubscribe button. That was horrific. That was a load of disgusting, nonsensical bullshit. No, that's ridiculous. That they would have a slaughterhouse like that. No, Würzburg is an ancient city settled in the 4th or 5th century by the Celts and uh, site of a tragic World War II disaster. On March 16th, 1945, about 90% of the city was destroyed in 17 minutes by firebombing from 225 British Lancaster bombers during a World War II air raid. Shit. That is a lot of destruction, especially in 17 minutes. Uh, In 2016, also, something happened there. Some dude was shot dead by authorities on a train. Uh, after attacking four people with a fucking hatchet, a hatchet attack. You don't hear about those often, thank God. Uh, it's very intense. Würzburg, also the home of the uh, Würzburg residence, an 18th century palace that at one time was the largest personal residence in all of Europe. One of the few buildings that survived that firebombing. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a Baroque masterpiece with over 300 rooms. It is fucking ridiculous. I looked at pictures. I got kind of stuck into a little time suck of just <laughs> looking at pictures of this place. It looks like it's roughly the size of a medium-sized shopping mall, uh, but like like the most high-end shopping mall you've ever seen by far. And, and it's just, you know, it's a personal residence, just the, just the perfect home for a family that wants to live under the same roof, but also be able to live their lives and go months without seeing each other. Uh, Würzburg is a picturesque, medieval-looking city, roughly an hour and a half's drive east of Frankfurt. Very green, lots of cool architecture. Not a place you expect a demon to find you, but maybe that's what happened. Back in the early 70s in Würzburg, things were pretty quiet. Annalise uh, was studying to become a teacher. Her classmates later described her as withdrawn and very religious. Uh, looking at pictures of her, pre-exorcism pictures, uh, she was very pretty. Unbeknownst to her classmates, she had been uh, struggling with uh, some health issues for a number of years. And recently, a very private battle uh, with what uh, her family believed to be a, a demonic possession that would end up be, uh, becoming very public when she started her college education. Her family was super Catholic, but when she started exhibiting strange possession-esque symptoms right around her 16th birthday, they didn't just run straight to the church. Uh, The first occurrence was passing out in school, shrugging it off as exhaustion brought on by vigorous studying. After going to bed that same day, just after midnight, she woke up. She couldn't move. The old sleep paralysis slash shadow people. Shadow people. We spoke of them in Time Suck 59. They'd struck. She awoke to feel a giant force pinning her down to her bed. Sat on her stomach, pressed her, her abdomen, pressed it so hard she could feel warm urine spilling out from her body, powerless to stop it. She could barely breathe. She tried to call out to her sisters, but no sound would come out of her mouth. Ugh. So whether or not there was a paranormal force behind this, you know, pretty damn scary. Whether it's sleep paralysis or shadow people, both ways very scary. I'm recording this one uh, with the windows open intentionally here in the Suck Dungeon to let us, and all of the lights on, and I'm still getting fucking creeped out. And still out of the corner of my eye right now, I see movement, and I don't want to look at it. I'm sure it's somebody walking down the street. <laughs> Everything is freaking me out now when I read about this stuff. God dang it. Okay. So um, so, so whether or not there's paranormal force behind this game, scary. And then it happened again about a year later. 
We'll talk about this all uh, all again in the timeline. For now, I just want to establish that a few strange incidents like this happened in high school, and then initially, her family didn't think the problem had supernatural roots. They thought it was a medical issue, and they took her to a neurologist, referred to them by their family physician. Uh, so good job, parents. You know, they took that shit seriously. And that brings us to what I want to discuss. Before we get into the horror aspects of this episode, thank God we're going to take a little break. Uh, the debate between the psychology community and the shrinking field of demonologists and exorcists Actually, the exorcist part is maybe not shrinking, as I found out, who believe uh, that the problem is paranormal. So let's start with the psychological look into exorcism. I've been a fan of the magazine and now magazine slash website Psychology Today since I was a psychology student roughly 250 years ago. And (laughs) they had some great articles. Uh, I found some great articles about the modern psychological community's explanation of demonic possession. I also found a fascinating 2016 Washington Post article written by a board-certified psychiatrist a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College who also works with priests on identifying demonic possession. So he has a very unique insight into all of this. So let's talk about countertransference to begin. Countertransference is defined as the emotional reaction of the analyst to the subject's contribution and how the analyst, you know, uh, you know, therapist reacts emotionally to a subject can influence the therapist's diagnosis which can then influence the patient's perception of what is wrong with them. I know that might have sounded a little confusing, but like, for example, like a therapist who feels irritated by a patient, they just don't like him for whatever reason, may eventually uncover subtle unconscious provocations by the patient that irritate and repel others, you know, uh, and thereby keep the patient unwittingly lonely and isolated. So, you know, if the, if the patient's doing something super fucking annoying that the uh, <laughs> therapist can't put their finger on, you know, if they pay attention to that, they might be able to figure out, oh, that's what annoys me, and perhaps that thing is annoying other people. Um, and then there's this concept of, of psychic infection, the spread of psychic effects or influences on others, which in the realm of demonic possession can basically mean that if the analyst, in this case, a priest, thinks you're infected with demons due to that priest's worldview, including demonic possession, as a real thing that happens to people, you can start to think this as well. It can infect your thoughts. Their thoughts infect your thoughts. This is amplified by counter-transference. You know, if, if, if the priest is reacting in a fearful way, because they're afraid of that they think that there is a demon inside your body, you can, you know, that can be transferred to you. Then you can become fearful of the same thing. You can pick up on it even like subconsciously, you know, if they're, if they're afraid some demons in there, uh, then you get scared. And then, you know, you can kind of that, that whole, uh, you know, which is a Jungian kind of concept, that psychic infection, you know, their thoughts about it can kind of become your thoughts about it. And some, that's what some people in the psychological community think is going on with these demonic possessions, that it's just, um, you know, people picking up on the energy of the people around them. Maybe they're raised in a very strict religious household, and that makes them worried about this stuff already, and they start exhibiting signs, and other people around them start interpreting those signs as, like, demonic. And so they, they internalize that as it must be demonic, and then it just kind of builds from there. And, and what are some of the symptoms of uh, possession? Uh, unusual strength. Feelings of being attacked by an unseen entity, volatile emotions, profane outbursts. These are also symptoms of certain psychotic disorders, you know, like dissociative identity disorder, uh, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. That's a condition wherein a a person's identity is fragmented into two or more distinct personality states. Uh, And some of your personalities may be stronger than others in a certain sense. You know, dissociative identity disorder can trick your brain into ignoring a certain amount of physical pain. Uh, that combined with a huge kind of rage-induced adrenaline spike, you know, can can turn you into basically super you and make your strength suddenly seem otherworldly. Uh, schizophrenia, a mental illness defined as a long-term mental disorder of a type involving a breakdown in the relation between thought, emotion, and behavior, 
leading to a faulty perception, inappropriate actions and feelings, withdrawal from reality, and personal relationships into fantasy and delusion, and a sense of mental fragmentation. Can include rare symptoms such as auditory and visual hallucinations, delusions, disorientation to place, people, and time, altered speech, paranoia, superhuman strength, superior insights, and catatonic behavior marked by still and motionless postures for hours or sometimes even days on end. So there are certain possession symptoms that do, for sure, overlap into symptoms of mental illness. The Catholic Church has long recognized that, uh, and, and these symptoms can't have been proven to be curable or at least uh, you know, able to be managed with antipsychotic medication, uh, other psychological medications and therapy. Now, be, before I share some of uh, some info from the doctor that also works with priests on identifying demonic possession, information that scared the shit out of me, uh, let's talk about how the Roman Catholic Church, historically the main go-to exorcism guys, have defined demonic possession. Now, the Roman Catholic Church's official diagnostic criteria for discerning genuine demonic possession includes speaking in tongues or languages formerly unfamiliar to the possessed person, supernatural physical strength, visibly negative reactions uh, of the victim to prayers, holy water, priests, etc. But for the modern church, physical and, and or psychiatric disorders must first be ruled out. The church teaches that demons can interfere in one of two ways with their victims, which I didn't realize. I thought it was just the one. And I may suffer. I may suffer from the first one. Demons can cause an obsession, termed an obsession, in which the demon fills the mind of its victim with evil thoughts. Aha! So that's why I write so many fucked up jokes. I got a joke demon filling my head with demon jokes. And that demon clearly thinks it's funny to talk about the brutal Ukrainian nightmare, Andrei Chikatilo. What is big deal? Why is it wrong to joke about Sostchenkov? How, why how is wrestling bad? Why how is aggressive play fighting with evil kid evil? I, I was trying to keep Mother Russia strong by wrestling out weak members of the party. Chikatilo has so much love for communist Russia that sometimes that love come out of the sad tip of Shamecock. See, damn it, damn it, right there. Fucking, that was an example of it. Be gone, Lucifina. You stop filling my head with your sick, disgusting demon jokes. Stop filling my, my, my head, or my heads, plural, with the thoughts of lingerie that I want Lindsay to wear around the house when the kids aren't home and about how she should be tied down to the bed when she wears some fishnet thigh highs and tall leather high heel boots with pinup makeup and, and hair and a, and a corset and... Damn it, demon! You're making it harder to podcast when I have a boner. It actually makes it literally harder, which is a bad pun that the demon also put in my head. And I'm back. Uh, no, session uh, is one of two ways, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that a demon can affect your life. The other... Uh, if I'm, if I have, if I have to pick one, if I have to have a demon obsess over, over me or possess me, I would pick obsession. Possession sounds far worse. And, and this is when the demon physically takes over the human body. Various signs of demonic possession are errors in belief, deceptions, falsehoods, lies, and confusion, speaking a great number of words from unknown languages or understanding them, making known things either distant or hidden, showing strength beyond one situation together with vehement aversion Towards God, Our Lady, the Cross, and Holy Pictures. Obviously, that's the, this is the Catholic definition. The Vatican guidelines uh, stress that most behaviors that appear to be caused by demonic possession are actually triggered by psychiatric illness. However, the church has not gone soft on the belief in, in, in Satan and in Satan's demons. Vatican spokesman Cardinal Jorge Medina Estevez stressed 
The existence of the devil isn't an opinion, something to take or leave as you wish. Anyone who says he doesn't exist wouldn't have the fullness of the Catholic faith. He said that the devil's presence is seen in the widespread acceptance of lies and deceit, the idolatry of money, the idolatry of sex. The presence of the devil explains the dramatic condition of the world, which languages under the power of the malign one. Now, according to the memoirs of Cardinal uh, Jacques Martin, former prefect of the pontifical household, Pope John Paul II successfully, uh, or or, sorry, uh, prefect of the pontifical household, Pope John Paul II successfully exercised a woman in 1982. Apparently, she was brought to him writhing on the ground. Father Gabriel Amorth told uh, La Stampa, uh, an Italian newspaper, that the Pope has carried out three exorcisms or that he did carry out three exorcisms during his 23-year pontificate. Amorth said, He carried out these exorcisms because he wanted to give a powerful example. He wanted to give the message that we must once again start exorcising those who are possessed by demons. I have seen many strange things during exorcisms, objects such as nails spat out. The devil told a woman that he would make her spit out a transistor radio, and lo and behold, she started spitting out bits and pieces of a radio transistor. I have seen levitations and a force that needed six or eight men to hold the person still. Such things are rare. But they happen. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, transistor radio was a long time ago. That'd be that'd be weird for that to have happened like two months ago. Like uh, like the demon just hadn't been on Earth in several decades, and so he's like, ah, like he doesn't get what's important to people now. Instead of going for like your MacBook, your iPhone, he's like, I'll take your transistor radio. I'll <laughs> I'll make you eat it. I'll make you spit up your transit. I, I don't. No one has that anymore. I'll find one. I'll find transistor radio and make it come out in pieces. Like just like, like like the other demons don't respect that one. They're just like, dude, if I can get, make an iPhone parts come out, something, kick it up, man. It's 2018. Um, okay, now let's talk about that uh, that psychiatry professor who believes in demonic possession. Because uh, I know there's a fair amount of skeptic time suckers out there, you know, and maybe you're still not convinced that there's a snowball's chance in hell that any of this stuff can be real. I, I hear you. I am a doubter myself. I'm a skeptic. Uh, at least until the sun goes down. And I'm alone and my imagination starts getting, you know, revved up. Then a lot of shit starts sounding way too possible. Starts sounding likely, which I don't care for. Um, While I was a little bummed out about how scary this episode might be in the sense that I was worried that exorcisms are just obviously not possible, you know, because, you know, demonic possession is just superstition. And then I read an article written by a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College, this Dr. Richard Gallagher, uh, who also works with priests on identifying demonic possession and, ugh, Man, this was uh, scary stuff for, for at least for me to come across. Uh, while initially not a believer, apparently this Dr. Gallagher, after witnessing numerous cases of alleged demonic possession, now feels that while rare, it is a real thing. And again, this is not this is not a guy who studied at the University of Wackadoodles Power Crystal Campus, right? He he trained in psychiatry at Yale and then in psychoanalysis at Columbia. And, and many years ago, a Catholic priest asked him for his professional opinion, which he offered pro bono about whether or not a woman the priest had been speaking with was suffering from a mental disorder as opposed to dem- demonic possession. Well, Dr. Gallagher doesn't give the date he was asked to do this, but but he said it happened during the height of the national panic about Satanism. Remember when we talked about that in the Mandela Effect episode? That was Suck 31. And based on that and how old he looks, uh, I'm, I'm strongly assuming this, this happened in the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, well, based on all the false accusations surrounding satanic scares, Dr. Gallagher was was inclined to be very skeptical but then he met a subject whose behavior exceeded anything he could explain with his you know, scientific training. He witnessed this woman who could tell some people their secret weaknesses, such as undue pride, 
right? It, it, now, is that one seriously kind of impressive? No, I, I know it's not. Like, oh, you have a lot of pride. It's like, that could be said about a lot of people. Um, uh, maybe she was just really good at observing, like, the way someone speaks, their body language, et cetera. You know, very detail-oriented, highly intelligent, able to kind of tell a lot about somebody, you know, with very few clues. I know, I know those people exist, and they're not, you know, demonic. But this woman also knew how individuals she had never known had died, including Dr. Gallagher's own mother. Like she, she knew that she died of ovarian cancer, that specific one. Uh, I should add this is back when you couldn't just easily access everyone's information on the web. And even if you could, I looked into Dr. Gallagher, and, and he's not like this public, you know, incredibly public figure with a lot of info about him that you can easily find. Uh, also, six people later vouched to Dr. Gallagher that during other exorcisms of the same woman, they'd heard her speaking multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside of her trances. Dr. Gallagher concluded this wasn't psychosis. It was what he could describe as paranormal ability. And, and he ended up uh, concluding that she was, you know, possessed in some form. The incident really shook Dr. Gallagher up. He was worried, you know, professionally what his peers would think of his conclusion. He would later reflect on the incident saying, is it possible to be a sophisticated psychiatrist and believe that evil spirits are, however seldom, assailing humans? Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no. Because of their frequent contact with patients who are deluded about demons, their general skepticism of the supernatural, and their commitment to employ only standard peer-reviewed treatments that do not potentially mislead or harm vulnerable patients. But careful observation of the evidence presented to me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. That's scary. Right, this well-educated dude, this highly trained student of the human mind now believes in demonic possession. And he believes it at the height of his career. It's not like he had all this education, uh, didn't believe in it. Then he had like a, a, a series of strokes or a psychotic break. He spent a few years in a mental health facility as a patient, you know, not as a doctor. And that's where he wrote this article. I, the demons are trying to get everybody. It's, no, he's, he, he's saying this as he's a noted lecturer, like right now. Also very scary is that Dr. Gallagher has heard from the church that claims of demonic possession in the United States are on the rise. He says the Vatican doesn't track global or, or countrywide uh, exorcism, but that according to the priest he's met, demand is definitely rising. According to a uh, priest he's spoken to, the United States is home to about 50 stable exorcists, those who have been designated by bishops to, to combat demonic activity on a semi-regular basis, up from just 12 a decade ago. And this was told to him by the Reverend uh, Vincent Lampert, an Indianapolis-based priest exorcist who is active in the International Association of Exorcists, and he receives about 20 inquiries per week, double the number from when his bishop appointed him in 2005. So, ugh. Uh, it's a bummer. Uh, Dr. Gallagher has heard of subjects at exorcisms he wasn't present at exhibit the extraordinarily rare phenomena of levitation, saying half a dozen people I work with vowed that they've seen it in the course of their exorcisms. He has witnessed subjects demonstrate hidden knowledge of all sorts of things, like what secret sins a person has committed uh, or, or where people are at a given moment. And these are skills that cannot be explained uh, except by some kind of special psychic or, or preternatural ability. You know, like uh, not having witnessed this stuff personally myself, I, I, I am still a little bit skeptical. But again, it's not like this guy found his degree in the bottom of a box of Cracker Jacks. Uh, it's not like he got, you know, a three-pack of Cracker Jacks, and in one of them was a prestigious psychiatry degree. Uh, if some person I had, I had never met knew my deepest, darkest secrets, you know, and then announced them, I would freak the fuck out. There's no denying something supernatural at that point. Like, if I had never recorded 
uh, which is unusual for most people. My deepest dark secret in, in stand up form, and released it on the Feel the Heat album. This is the one you spaces just got when you signed up. It's a track called Feel the Heat, which I really is true. <laughs> I wish it wasn't, but uh, on that track, I admit to burning my penis on a bathroom space heater when I was five because I felt like my snake dick needed to bite the grill. Uh, that was something I truly never told a single soul. No one, no one for over 30 years. And if I was in an exorcism and then some demon would just like, Dan Cummins, how is your cock? Do you still wonder if you did permanent structural damage to your urethra when you wondered how hot the bathroom heater grill was and you stuck your dick on it? When your mama left the bathroom when you were five to take a phone call and you hopped out of the tub, shut the door, pretended your penis was a snake? And then decided your little snake weenie needed to bite the heater to nibble it. Do you still question how solid the basic foundation of your mental health truly is? <laughs> that would, that would, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would lose it. I would lose it. I would just, I don't even, I don't even know how I would react to that. Like part of me thinks I would just like crumble to the floor just in a, in a weeping fetal position. And I, and I did, I really did do that. That is not some story I made up. I wondered how hot the grill on the electric bathroom heater was. I had a strong sense of curiosity and some real weird thoughts, obviously. And I, uh, I, I used the inside of my penis to find out. I, I bit it. I had my little wiener snake, and I bit the grill. Just, you know, classic, classic trial and error experimentation. I'm sure you've all chomped stuff with your wean snakes. If you have a wean, you probably haven't. Uh, but seriously, what if you don't believe in any of this shit? But then you witnessed an exorcism, and suddenly a strange voice emanated from some person you never knew prior to the exorcism. And shared a secret you had never told anyone. How do you rationalize that? You know, if someone's like, hey, dog fucker. <laughs> Still thinking about sticking it in a golden retriever like you did on May 12th, 1984, 12.15 Pacific time behind the Anderson shed. Because you just needed to know if it was possible and how it would feel. That one is not mine. That one is not mine. That's uh, completely random nonsense I made up. Uh, not trying to shame you if, you, uh, <laughs> if you're a time sucker who also is a dog fucker. I should actually probably shame you. That's pretty terrible. You should be ashamed of that. Not saying you're, you're a horrible person, but that is pretty gross and unethical. Uh, and I do realize there's a few a few of you who probably didn't care for that example. You know, I'll tell you one person, you know, or one entity that really didn't care for that example. Bojangles. That muscle takes shit from no one. Three-legged, one-eyed pit bull mascot of time suck. Bojangles wishes everyone was a dog fucker or even better, uh, more appropriately, a dog fucky. And he does not consider that term a derogatory description. Uh, this is actually the second time I had to record today's time suck. Cause the first time I made that joke, he backpawed me and bounced my head off the wall. And, uh, when I came to, he was gone. And that's the only reason I felt comfortable making that joke again was in his absence. Anyway, I'll stop. What I'm saying is when it comes to stuff like exorcism, I feel like a lot of people are in the, I'll believe it when I see it camp. I am one of them similar to UFOs, cryptozoology, the rest of the paranormal world. And I haven't seen any of this stuff, you know, firsthand full disclosure. But this week, the more I look into this, the more people I talk to, the more I start to think maybe. Because a lot of people do claim to have, you know, uh, d- definitive first, uh, you know, hand accounts with this kind of stuff. You know, this past week when the sun's been down for hours and Lindsay goes to bed, and Kyler and Monroe are, you know, are with their mom and stepdad this week. And it's just me and my laptop in the dark. I think, fuck, maybe starting to sound like probably. Okay. I-, I think the stage has been set now for the possibilities of what demon possession may be and, and who it may have occurred to Annalise Michelle. Uh, and before we go further, uh, a little word from today's sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by the 2018 Pootie and Juju Con. Held in lovely La Jolla, California, just outside San Diego, the 2018 Pootie and Juju Con will take place this May 24th 
25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, and also on June 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, through the 15th at the La Quinta Inn and Convention Center. There will be Pootie and Juju voiceover artists from the classic 1960 through 1965 Saturday P&G morning cartoon series, Pootie and Juju's Magic Twinkle Hole. Uh, Max Wigaby and Danielle Vagahooten, the stars of Pootie and Juju's Magic Twinkle Hole, the voices behind those classic P&J phrases that they gave to a whole new generation of kids. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Do a little two-diddle, Pootie. Also attending will be the grandson of Pootie and Juju creator Jamal Johnson, who will have his grandfather's ashes, the great Reverend Dr. Antoine Jackson Esquire III, on display for the entire event. So much fun. There will also be trivia nights, neon bowling, tilt-a-whirls, knife fights, pudding wrestling, jello shots, costume parties, and Q&As with everyone from Clint Eastwood, who voiced one of the animated series' most notable villains, Kitty Von Tweedlebiscuit, who had her own popular catchphrase, No one slops my dingle hop, not ever! Forrest Whitaker, Sarah Bareilles will also be in attendance because they're, they seem cool as shit. So go to Pootie and Juju. Pootieandjuju.biz.net.com.nitwit and order your passes today. Only $17,996 per pass per person. Reference Time Suck and get a free Pootie and Juju coffee mug. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. <laughs> okay. So obviously that was nonsense. I could not make it through that without laughing, which I know seems probably pretty narcissistic. However, we really do have Pootie and Juju coffee mugs in the Time Suck store. I'm not kidding about that, like for reals. Time Sucker Nate Smith. This is what I was referring to earlier. Time Sucker Nate Smith sending some Pootie and Juju artwork a while back. We put it on Instagram. And then Sebastian and Alfonso, right, Leonardo and Michelangelo over Danger Brain incorporated that work into a kick-ass old diner-style Pootie and Juju limited edition coffee mug. Uh, they say, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley, on the back, and cold to the curious on the front. Or I guess coffee mugs really don't have a front and a back. One side says one, one side says the other. Uh, they're $15 each, and there is a limited uh, amount. It's a limited edition mug. Only 200 exist, and when they're gone, they're gone. So if you want them, grab them quick. That was fun. That was too much fun for me. So now, <laughs> let's get to know uh, Annalise Michelle with the Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. September 21st, 1952. Annalise is born Anna Elizabeth Michelle uh, in Liebelfing, Bavaria, West Germany, a little town of 4,000 people, an hour and 20 minutes drive northeast of Munich, where her mother parents, uh, mother's parents lived. Her parents actually lived... Um, her parents, excuse me, Annalise's parents actually lived in Klingenberg on Maine, a little town of 6,000 people, four hours drive northwest of uh, Liebelfing and less than 45 minutes from Frankfurt, where she'd be raised and where her father, Joseph uh, Michelle, owned and operated a whoopee cushion testing facility. I mean, sawmill. Such a better story, though, right? If her dad owned and operated not just a whoopee cushion factory, but a whoopee cushion testing facility. Oh, well. Damn facts getting in the way of our fun story. Anna was the second child of her mother, Anna Ferg. Uh, her older sister, Martha, died at age eight from kidney ailment, from a kidney ailment, excuse me. Annalise's mother, uh, Anna, before meeting Joseph, had worked in the office of her father's whoopee cushion testing facility. No, uh, 
uh, sawmill again. Actually, sawmills on both sides of the family. A lot of wood in the beginning of this timeline. Annalise's father, Joseph, was raised in a very Catholic family. His mother desperately wanted him to become a priest. Three of his aunts were nuns. Joseph himself considered becoming a priest, but while he got good grades and everything else, wasn't good at Latin. So, you know, no mass for him. Instead, uh, he took over the family business testing those fart balloons. Now, he took over the sawmill. Spent his days working with some hard wood instead. Now, uh, then at 22 years old, he was drafted at the outbreak of the Second World War to fight for Germany, which is a pleasant way of saying he was a Nazi. Uh, isn't it amazing how different words describing the same thing conjure up such different images? I mean, you know, he fought for his country in the war. Uh, you know, in saying that, he fought for his country in the war. That comes across as honorable as you can get. Uh, he was a Nazi, not so much. Describing the same thing. Uh, I do I do feel sorry for Nazis who were just young men who didn't uh, agree, you know, with what was going on, but just got drafted into war that they knew they'd probably be fucking killed if they didn't fight in. Uh, that, that, yeah, what a terrible position. Anyway, he fought first on the Western Front, Belgium and France, uh, and Belgium and France, and then was sent to Russia. Toward the end of the war, Joseph became a prisoner of the Americans. Uh, he was released in June of 1945, went to Munich to attend school for construction work in 1946, summer of 48, passed his master's examination in carpentry, uh, took over the family business in Klingenberg, and married Anna two years later. And Klingenberg was a was a very religious and superstitious town. In school, Klingenberg children would learn about Dr. Faustus, a brilliant swindler, who, according to early versions of this tale, uh, passed through Würzburg, Würzburg, that small city of 126,000 we talked about earlier, located roughly an hour east, you know, where, where Annalise would, would later attend college. Uh, and this Dr. Faustus uh, would pass through there, and he made a pact with the devil, who in the end murdered him, tearing him limb from limb, and, and battered his brains against the wall. Uh, that was a kid's tale. Uh, fun kid's tale. I'm sure the kids love that one. Could you tell us more of Dr. Faustus, Papa? Please, more of the arms been unripping from the body and un brain that smashed and unflattened on the wall? Please, Papa. Please, more Dr. Faustus. It helps me sleep. And again, uh, that was a German-ish accent. They're slipping it out. Students also learned of, uh, learned of witches in Klingenberg. Uh, here we go again with the fucking witches. Uh, apparently witches have evil powers that they can use to curse others and, and the curses can last long after the witches die and they can make, you know, innocent people, you know, sick or rob them of their sanity and it can't be cured by a doctor. And these are, you know, like popular tales floating around as, uh, Annalise is growing up in this town. And, and there would be those in Klingenberg who would believe, uh, that she had been, you know, uh, a victim of one of these witches curses. Uh, remember earlier when I was on the possession thing might be real train. This is almost causing me to jump. You know, I, I may believe in possession. You know, I, it's, I'm, I'm open to it. Uh, not so much with witches. Witch talk to me always rings of just such uh, superstitious ignorance. Like, like if I was having drinks with somebody and they seem sane to me, we're having drinks at the bar, and suddenly they lean over and they're like, dude, I, I know this sounds crazy, but demonic possession is real. I've seen it. All right, I, would be, I would be open to that discussion. I, would, I wouldn't immediately question that person's sanity. But if someone was like, hey, I need your help. There is a witch that's trying to curse my family. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Get the fuck out of here. That's just, uh, just maybe just the term witch. When people are like, ah, witches are after me. It just, it just reeks of crazy to me. Uh, after Annalise was born in 1952, uh, Anna gave birth to three more girls, Gertrude, Maria, uh, Barbara, and Roswitha, Christine. Annalise's uh, sisters were fit and healthy as children. Annalise was not. She was sickly. She got the measles like an asshole. 
who doesn't care how much that inconveniences their parents. Bush League. Uh, in 1957, when she was four or five, she caught both the mumps and scarlet fever again like a selfish asshole. Uh, can you imagine if I really thought that? Like, what a dick that kid is getting sick all the time. Just what, Does he not just think of his parents? Uh, her, her grade school recommended to her parents that she be kept home an extra year before starting kindergarten uh, due to her small size and sickly nature. Uh, when she did attend kindergarten, she was an easy target for bullies, was often pushed around by more aggressive children. Uh, you know, other kids who had the decency to be strong and confident. Kids who fucking get it. Uh, now, by 1965, when Annalise was 13, uh, she'd already had two kids. She was working on her second marriage. She struggled with a methamphetamine addiction. was rumored to have bludgeoned a local hobo to death with a steel rolling pin and then hidden his body under a plaque honoring the mayor in the town square. Wait, now that doesn't make any sense at all. That's the wrong story. No, by the time she was 13, she had become a normal, healthy kid. That feels more right. That feels better. Uh, she was like the rest of us. One friend and fellow classmate, Maria Burdick, told a court investigator after Annalise's death, she was a jolly girl participating in the usual school pranks and jokes, like bludgeoning hobos. No, of course that's not right. Annalise's father would later remember her at this time as being a happy child, glowing with joy. Uh, she did play the accordion, which as it turns out, is exactly how you get possessed by a demon. The accordion, the devil's hand piano. Second only to the guitar in terms of being a musical conduit to the Dark Lord. <laughs> but for reals, she did play an accordion. Uh, an instrument, by the way, that, that Weird Al and I believe Weird Al alone has made cool. And she took piano lessons. She was a good student, getting solid grades. She was especially good at Latin. Her mother, Anna, uh, you know, recalling later that her daughter was able to recite Latin vocabulary assignments with breathtaking speed. Big point of pride in her super Catholic family. Uh, her mother hoped Annalise would become a school teacher, a very prestigious and wholesome profession for a woman, especially a religious woman of that time in that area. Uh, Annalise's father uh, also took pride in his daughter's grades as he would uh, often brag to his friends in the local tavern. He believed a solid education would get her married to a better type of husband. Funny that these thoughts were being held in the late 60s, not like the 1920s. I guess the, the countercultural revolution of America of the 60s had just uh, clearly not hit Little Klingenberg yet, you know, equal rights and all that. Part of this old-fashioned mentality was the area they lived in. Another part of it was the uber-conservative household of the Michelle family. Michelle's, you know, they were very strict with their daughters. Uh, the family all went to church together every Sunday on various weekday evenings at home. They would all pray uh, with the, and say the rosary together. Uh, they were so conservative that— uh, Anna frowned on her daughters taking uh, local co-ed sports classes at the local uh, gymnasium and attending the uh, occasional school dance. She was very concerned with her with her daughter's you know purity. What a terrible way to live, by the way, basing your your daughter's uh, self worth on, or I guess I guess you know your version of her worth uh, on on the intactness or lack thereof of her hymen. It's always like, man. Uh, while Anna couldn't keep Gertrude, Maria, uh, Barbara, and Russ with the Christine at home, she did manage to keep Annalise away from boys. And dancing by convincing her she was too frail and sickly to be gallivanting around town. Leave, leave that gallivanting to Gertrude, all right? Gertrude's destined to be an old maid anyway. <laughs> Remember that hot girl from college named Gertrude? Exactly. Actually, I'm sure there are a lot of beautiful Gertrudes out there. If you're a Gertrude listening, just ignore me. You know, I'm crazy. I say stuff. You know that. Poor Annalise really did have a lonely and secluded adolescence. Uh, her sisters would recall finding her crying in a room about yet another time she'd been forbidden to go out or go dancing. Uh, September of 1968, Annalise, uh, around the time of her 16th birthday, uh, had a little episode. Shit started to get worse for her. We mentioned this earlier. She blacked out at school. 
She was able to start attending University of Würzburg early due to her solid grades, and, and, uh, and initially she shrugged it off thinking she was just exhausted from studying too much. And again, as I said before, the same night, shortly after midnight, she, she woke up. She couldn't move. Giant force was pinning her down, pressed on her abdomen. She could feel suddenly like warm urine spilling out. She could barely breathe. She tried to call out to her sisters. She couldn't make a sound, and it was as if her tongue was paralyzed. Holy mother of God, she thought I must be dying. Uh, but by the time the, to- the, the tower clock in town of the, you know, the, of the church uh, sounded the quarter hour, everything was over. All her symptoms were gone, and only her tongue felt sore. So it didn't last that long. She was exhausted. She could hardly move, but she was able to get up and change the linen on her bed the next day. She told her mom that she was too tired to go to school. You know, she was very sick the previous night. Her mom let her stay home and, uh, and had her explained, you know, uh, what happened. And then, they, and then they were worried about it for a bit. But then it, then it didn't happen again for a long time. And then life went on and everything seemed, you know, okay. The only thing that had changed was that she was suddenly very good on the accordion. She had, she had suddenly mastered the devil's hand piano. And Mother Anna knew in her heart of hearts, you can only play those minor scales with such passion and vigor if you'd sold your soul. No, that's ridiculous. Everything seemed legit. Annalise continued to go to school as before, live the same life. She started playing tennis. Christmas came and went. She completed final exams, made it to summer vacation without any other incidents. Then August 24th, 1969, same strange paralyzing occurrence happens again, exactly as before. There was a brief blackout during the day. And in the middle of the night, the frightening paralysis with the arms completely stiff, inability to breathe, the, the feeling of attempting to scream and call out for help but not being able to do so. After letting Anna know about the second occurrence, her mom rushes down the street to the family physician. And within an hour, she and Annalise have boarded a train. They're heading off to uh, a Schulfenberg to consult with Dr. Siegfried Luthi, a neurologist. So, you know, they're taking this shit seriously. The doctor ran a bunch of tests, asked a ton of questions. As he told a criminal investigator uh, many years later who had come to his office to interview him on February 9th, 1977, he couldn't find anything wrong with her. Uh, he did recall being somewhat concerned uh, with her supernatural accordion skills when she played Ach du lieber Augustin front to back and then back to front double time in two separate keys simultaneously. <laughs> Seriously, though, he couldn't find anything neur- neurologically or psychologically wrong with her. Uh, he asked uh, Anna and Annalise uh, to come back on August 27th for an EEG, which they did. Still nothing. Based on uh, only the reports from Annalise and her mother about convulsions, the doctor judged that it was probably just a case of cerebral seizures of the nocturnal type, uh, possible symptoms of a grand mal uh, type of epilepsy. And that sounds worse than it is. There are varying degrees of severity concerning epilepsy, and it's way more common than I I believed. About 2.9 million Americans currently have epilepsy or or suffer from it. Uh, Fall of 1969, things start to slowly but steadily go downhill for Annalise. She starts to miss classes on a more regular basis for not feeling well. One of her sisters remembers how Annalise started complaining about a sore throat that fall. Her tonsils eventually had to be removed. Soon after she contracted uh, pleurisy, an inflammation of the uh, pleura, which impairs their lubricating function and causes pain when breathing. It's caused by pneumonia, other diseases of the chest or abdomen. So it makes sense that she'd get this because she also did come down with pneumonia. Uh, Complicated by tuberculosis infection. So she had all kinds of shit hitting her. She, She was so sick at this point that at the tail end of 1969, she had to drop out of school. She was confined to bed at home, prevented from even going to mass on Christmas Eve or getting out of bed for her sister's birthday on Christmas. When, when she still wasn't feeling any better in January, she was transferred to a hospital in Aschaffenburg. February 28, 1970. She moves to a clinic uh, in the mountainous southern region of Bavaria that was a sanatorium, so uh, not fun. 
a sanatorium that specialized in bronchial and lung diseases of children and juveniles. As of June 3rd, 1970, she's still stick, uh, sick, excuse me, still stuck in that sanatorium. How much would that suck, man? Just be there for months on end, uh, out in the mountains, away from everybody in just some fucking hospital, just with nothing but other sick people. Then, then she was struck a third time by the mysterious paralysis, right? The stiff arms, the struggle for breath, the warm urine. It's constantly being described as, in what I read, as warm urine, which, uh, I don't Does that have to be said? What other kind of urine is there? I guess it'd be way, way scarier if all of a sudden she's laying there and then piping hot urine sprayed forth from her vagina. That would fucking be terrifying. Or uh, like uh, urine sickles, like, like, a, like a urine ice cube just starts popping out. Can you imagine? It's just like she just started shooting out little urine, little mini popsicles, little urine cubes out of her v- vajay. That, that's when you know you're in a real world of shit. When you are, you, when your vagina becomes a urine popsicle factory. How, how, however, this time she was at least able to get a scream out and people ran over to help her. A few days after the seizure, Annalise was sitting on a chair beside her bed, uh, started praying for the rosary and the praying seemed to help. But then shit got real weird. As she prayed, her hands cramped up like when a cat stretches his claws. Suddenly, some other patients at the sanatorium noticed that her eyes turned black, which, you know, is a thing that you would notice. Uh, Annalise didn't believe the other patients uh, because she felt great. She felt uplifted from her prayer. She got up, looked in the mirror, and noticed that her eyes were definitely darker than usual. And what was also odd was she suddenly looked extremely healthy otherwise. She was very rosy-cheeked, you know, looked like she had just been miraculously cured. She felt great. Just, you know, very suddenly. On June 16th, Annalise was sent to a doctor, uh, Dr. Vaughn Holler, another neurologist, a specialist, and demonic accordion abilities to figure out what the fuck's going on here. That's a quote. Now, that is, that is a quote, but it's not Dr. Von Holler's quote. It's mine. He was, he was, he was a neurologist, though, and he recorded an EEG uh, on a brain noggin that showed a regular alpha pattern with scattered theta and delta waves, nothing pathological, nothing alarming. Uh, he recommended anti-convulsant medication for, his, for her seizures, and, and while she, uh, it is believed she took medication at this time for this, not known exactly what she did take. A few days later, a few days after the whole claw hand, black eye experience, Annalise uh, tries to pray away her pain once again, and this time when she when she tries, she suddenly uh, sees, you know, I guess in her mind's eye, maybe be the best way to describe it, this huge, cruelly grimacing demon face leaves her terrified. And after seeing this face, you know, she's afraid to pray again. So she grows more and more despondent. You know, she's kept at the sanatorium for another six weeks after the EEG. She becomes more afraid of prayer because every time she she would build up this courage to try and pray and say the rosary again. Uh, which was an important part of her faith, she would see that demonic face, that terrifying face uh, that she began to fear lived inside of her. So basically, life is awesome. Things are going really well for her right now. Uh, No, on August 11th, Dr. Von Holler uh, checks her EEG once more, still finds no uh, regularities, asked her how she was feeling lately, and all she mentioned was that she was dizzy sometimes. She felt that way. She didn't mention the whole, uh, I see a demon face every time I try to pray situation. And then on August 29th, she is discharged, allowed to go home. And then her sisters uh, find her uh, a changed person. They find her very moody. Uh, Annalise just blames it on exhaustion. Fall of 1970, Annalise is able to return to school. She's now older than the rest of her class. She had missed a lot of days, uh, you know, school, due to the whole being stuck in a sanatorium, uh, haunted by visions of a demon face situation. Uh, she felt dejected and alone. She was a new girl all over again. She earned uh, only average grades. She didn't feel very well still. Her mother continued to be anxious and worried about her daughter's health. On October 6, 1970, 
Her mom takes her to a specialist for lung disease now, Dr. Reichelt. You know, asked her questions, and this doctor asked her questions about uh, her seizures, uh, you know, and, and they mentioned to him that she had had one recently coinciding more or less with the start of the new school year. Annalise's lungs checked out fine, but the doctor did find some circulatory problems, wrote a referral to an internist. Going to all these different doctors definitely took a toll on Annalise. It made her feel odd and different from her peers, like an outcast. It was difficult, stressful for her mother as well. You know, mom had to take off a lot of work, spend days with the doctor, you know, with her daughter which is affecting the family business because who's going to test those whoopee cushions? Oh, sorry. Annalise would later say she fell into a deep depression. Around this time, she became apathetic, lost interest in life around her. Uh, but at least for a few years, no more talk of demonic faces. So that's a positive. June of 1972, Annalise has another seizure. She's uh, completely spent. She's wiped out for four days afterwards. She, she's dreading when the next uh, seizure is going to uh, occur. She does have a few minor seizures in the days and months afterwards. And then her mom, uh, Anna, becomes increasingly worried yet again about her health. And then on, and then on um, uh, September 5th, 1972, uh, yeah, sorry, I just wrote down the wrong, wrong year in my notes, which threw me a little bit. Uh, once again, uh, Anna and Annalise make a trip to the neurologist. Uh, the doctor would later tell an investigator that during this visit, Annalise had, uh, admitted suffering through some pretty serious seizures. The doctor prescribes the anticonvulsant Zentropyl. Annalise starts taking one tablet in the morning and two at night. She starts feeling better, but her accordion skills rapidly deteriorate. Interesting. Uh, Annalise comes back for, for regular checkups in, uh, you know, on January uh, 18th. Uh, I guess that would be 1973, uh, March 27th, June 4th, and, the, and 6th of 1973. Uh, though Annalise was experiencing uh, anxiety and stress due to her school exams, the seizures, according to the doctor's medical records, went away uh, under the new medicine regiment. Annalise and her family would later say that the seizures did not go away. And then, in fact, she began experiencing some new and disturbing, uh, you know, I guess, uh, symptoms. Maybe is the right word. She started smelling a horrible stench that was not perceived by others. Little did she know that her family had begun testing a new scented whoopee cushion at the testing facility. Joke's on you, Annalise. You thought it was hell you were smelling. No, uh no mom, no ma'am. Just a new rancid bean and rotten egg cocktail cooked up by the family testing facility. Now, in the spring of 1973, life throws, you know, a few more turds on the old shit sandwich that has become Annalise's existence. New disturbing things begin happening. Annalise begins to hear knocking sounds in her room when no one else, uh, that no one else notices. She experiences them so often, talks about it so often that she's brought in a, again to a doctor uh, to be checked out by the family physician to see if her ears are going bad. Hearing tests come back totally normal. Uh, but at this point, her mom, Anna, begins to uh, hear things as well. Uh, so does, uh, you know, some of the rest of the family, you know, like uh, her other daughters. They, they would hear a rapping on the wall, the sounds of a chair falling over inside the wardrobe closet. And at this point, her Annalise's mother begins to suspect, to suspect something supernatural. But, but her father does not want to consider this possibility quite yet. He, he believes his daughter is just physically ill. And then old demon face comes back. God, how fun would it be for that to start happening to you? Oh, man, just to see a demon face pop up from time to time. And, uh, and now, I guess with Annalise, there was multiple faces starting to pop up. Holy shit, man. It's incredible that she didn't throw herself off the roof during this. Seriously, I'm not making light of suicide. I, I just don't know that I would be able to handle seeing that kind of shit. I mean, can you imagine trying to fall asleep at night? You're in your bed, especially if you're like alone, and then suddenly demonic faces are just popping up around you at will, just like we're looking at you, taunting you, just, you know, monitoring you day and night. That would drive anyone mad. 
And this is happening to Annalise. She's now seen multiple ghastly, distorted faces much more frequently. You know, she could be making her bed, playing piano, just even looking out the window and all of a sudden just see and be horrified by their appearance. She tells her mom that these faces look like they're devils with horns. She believes they're coming for her. They're coming for her soul. They're telling her that she's damned and that hell awaits her. Well, this creates a lot of tension in the Michelle household, as you would expect. Uh, Her mother, you know, uh, Anna, is becoming more and more convinced that this is the work of the devil. Uh, Her father, Joseph, thinks essentially that it's all in uh, Annalise's head. He thinks it has something to do with her epilepsy. Uh, Turns out the truth is that all of this is actually Gertrude. She's been scaring Annalise by popping out of dark corners and freaking Annalise the hell out with nothing but her naturally hideous Gertrude face. When viewed close up, a Gertrude face is indistinguishable uh, from a demon face. Again, sorry to any uh, Gertrudes. No, uh, mom becomes very convinced this is all the work of Satan. Uh, when late that spring, she, now this is fucking, oh my, this, this would freak anyone out if you actually saw this. Uh, mom would claim uh, that she was walking through the living room late that spring and suddenly saw Annalise looking at the mother of God, looking at a picture of, the, of Mother Mary. Only it wasn't with respect or with adoration. Uh, her face was like a terrible mask full of hatred. Her eyes had turned jet black. Her slender hands, uh, which apparently were very delicate, uh, well, now they seem to be uh, sticks with claws at the end, right? I, I, she said, I, I tell you, it was awful. I was so scared. I rushed up to the office. I tried to call myself by writing out some bills, only I couldn't. My hands shook so I couldn't hold a pen, and I could not see the letters on the typewriter. At first, when I read that, I, I thought, like, how do you go try to, and pay bills after that? That was, like, my initial take. But then on, upon further, further reflection, her reaction does make sense to me. I mean, I mean, how could you not go to some kind of place of denial? And try to convince yourself that something like that never happened. Or, or at least try not to think about it. Like if I walked into the living room and I saw Kyler and Monroe just crawling across the ceiling like a couple of little uh, demonic spider monkeys. I think there's a very good chance I would just quietly turn around and walk the fuck back out of that room. Right? I would try to convince myself that I had not, you know, I'm getting enough sleep. You know, I've been sleep deprived. And, and that there's no way I just saw my kids scurrying about on the ceiling like a pair of giant devil cockroaches. Well, the Michelle family now becomes unified in their belief that something supernatural is clearly at work. And they begin to look uh, to prayer for guidance, and this does not help. Instead, Annalise begins to suffer a new kind of hellish torment, one that grows worse and worse. She, she would talk about it in a conversation with her father, uh, one that her father had recorded a few months before her death on February 1st, 1976. She would say, it was especially gruesome at the time of my exams. Oh, you cannot imagine the most thoughtful dread. It is a terror that goes through all my limbs and settles there. It is a feeling of thinking you are right there in the middle of hell. You are totally, utterly deserted. You can call all you want for help to the mother of God, maybe, but they are all deaf. I think that's how it must have been for the Savior on the Mount of Olives, where they say he was beset by shudders of death. Although I think for him, it must have been even worse, for after all, he had taken all the sins of the people on himself, the sins of the world. So, you know, she's not a real good mental place. She feels like she's living in hell. Like she's been abandoned by God, right? Like she's seeing demon faces. She's getting, she's getting caught, you know, by her mom, staring at a picture of Mother Mary with black demon eyes. And then on top of everything, she gets sick, physically sick again in the spring of 1973. She comes down with the German measles, which are just like regular measles, except they're incredibly anti-Semitic and are constantly trying to start world wars. Uh, no, German measles, also known as rubella, basically a milder form of measles, terribly unpleasant and typically... Uh, a disease encountered in early childhood, like an in infancy. And because this childhood disease came so late uh, for Annalise, her parents, you know, they got worried again, consulted a family, a physician. They went to a new doctor this time, Dr. Keeler, 
So many damn doctors. And Annalise confessed to this new doctor that she felt she was growing more and more depressed. Yeah, I bet. And that she was having, starting to have suicidal thoughts, but just felt like she was too much of a coward to go through with them. Uh, well, summer of 1973, her father comes up with something new to try. He'd take her to San uh, Damiano, uh, a church and monastery near Assisi, Italy, uh, built in the 12th century, a miracle in which uh, St. Francis heard, uh, and when, when St. Francis uh, you know, claims to have heard Christ, occurred in, in, in two, uh, 1205 CE in this church. And, and here's the miracle as recorded by the church. And this is you know Saint Francis. He says uh, one day out in the country, uh, one day out in the countryside to meditate, finding himself near San uh, Damiano, which threatened uh, ruin, old as it was. Driven by the impulse of the Holy Spirit, he entered to pray, kneeling in prayer before the image of the crucifix. He was invaded with a great spiritual consolation, and as he affixed his tearful eyes on the cross of the Lord with the tears of his bo- or with the ears of his body, he heard a voice descend to him from the cross and say three times, Francis. Go and repair my church, which, as you will see, is all in ruins. On hearing that voice, Francis remained astonished and trembling, being in the church alone and perceiving in his heart the power of divine language, felt kidnapped by his senses. Finally, returning to his senses, he girded himself to obey, concentrated everything on the mission to repair the church walls, although the divine word was referring principally to the church which Christ purchased by his blood as the Holy Spirit had made him understand and how he later revealed to his fellow monks. So, uh, you know, he's supposed to repair the whole Catholic Church. So afterwards, St. Francis took action to physically repair the structure of the San Damiano Church and then eventually realized that God's message was to restore the entire Catholic Church, the whole body, rather than literally repair one stone structure. But ever since, various members of the Catholic faithful have claimed to have been healed of various, you know, ailments by visiting this particular church. So so why not give it a shot? Let's take on Elise there. Totally get it. Try anything. Why not? And, and as you're probably guessing, didn't work out too well. This is what happened to her when she arrived. Annalise was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soil burns like fire and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling uh, in this little area surrounding the garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the garden Then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ in the chapel of the house. She made it several times to the garden but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints because they sparkled so intensely that she could not stand it. Now, witnesses around her, even ones uh, traveling in the group, uh, they they observed her behavior. They noticed it. They They thought she was just crazy. They noticed that she refused to drink well water that was supposedly miraculous, you know. They witnessed Annalise's father buying her a medal, but she just wouldn't wear it. Uh, she claims that when she, when she tried to you know, put it on, uh, she couldn't breathe. Annalise could not help but notice that uh, people were talking about her. And, uh, but, but even though she was aware that people were talking about her and aware that she was acting you know, crazy, she wasn't able to change the way she was behaving. She would say that her will was not her own and that something else, someone else, was manipulating her. And then on the bus ride home, shit got even worse. Uh, Annalise mocked Frau Hein, the organizer of the trip on the bus. She spoke uh, with a voice like a man's. She simply just wasn't Annalise anymore. She tore off a religious medal that Frau Hein was wearing. Worst of all, she exuded a stench like uh, Fra- Frau Hein had never smelled before, like burning shit. That's, that's what was written. Everyone in the bus could smell it. it. smelled like burning shit. Burning shit, man. I'm having a hard time coming up with a worse smell than that. What would be worse than that? Maybe, uh... I don't know, maybe burning shit that, that someone's eaten and then thrown up and then set on fire again. I mean, is that worse? Or is that just more gross to imagine? 
finally, after all this, in late 1973, the possibility is, 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 again, finally brought up that maybe it's time to speak with a Jesuit priest about the possibility of demonic possession and consider an exorcism. And that is what takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Bit of a tease. I know, time suckers. Uh, but only a few days until we dive into Annalise's family, uh, contacting you know an exorcist and take an in-depth look at that exorcism. Actually, multiple. Uh, I didn't expect this, this this possible possession to be such a, a slow build, by the way. I, I always thought that these things came about pretty quickly. I uh, guess not. Feels like whatever's happened to her has been this, you know, this manifesting you know, for years. Uh, let's see what other people think about demonic possession by taking a quick peek. Uh, you know, uh, let's, let's, let's take a little gander into uh, the idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. It made sense to go to a video regarding uh, Annalise Michelle's exorcism. So I found a BuzzFeed video titled The Chilling Exorcism of Annalise Michelle has almost 9 million views. Uh, so many weird comments like you'd expect. Like this one from Super Supernova uh, who said, since when did the demon learn how to swear? It, it, they actually wrote learnt, like with a T, which is not a word. Uh, since when did the demon learnt how to swear? Uh, I, I love that a demon's use of profanity is what this person is hung up on. Look, I, look, I get, I get that demons exist. I'm not questioning that. I'm not questioning that. That makes sense to me. Makes total sense. What I don't get is the potty language. Where is a demon going to learn how to curse? Where? Uh, oh, is it going to learn in hell? Uh, yeah, probably. That's probably exactly where it would learn. Uh, another person gets hung up on something similar. User Ice T asks, how did the demon learn German? Again, why are you getting hung up on this? Why, why are you applying some kind of silly logic rule uh, to the supernatural? If some creature from another realm can pass over into this one, is, is you know, are you, gonna be, you really going to be surprised they can also pick up a language? Like, like, that's, like what, that's harder? I think if you can fucking morph into different realms, you can probably figure out some, you know, verb conjugation. Uh, Zombie Hunter. 1376 drops my favorite comment of the thread saying there should have been Snickers back then. That I laughed so hard when I first read that because I just was thinking about all those Snickers commercials. You know, people are fucking freaking out. They're just being crazy. And then they take a bite of the Snickers and then, you know, then they snap back to being calm and, you know, they got a grip on things. A demonic possession Snickers commercial. That would be pretty fantastic. If, if one hasn't been done already, I feel like I feel like how is that like how has that not been done? Uh, Christy loves Starbucks asks a very unanswerable question, which always amuses me on the web. Uh, I feel like those are always fun. She asks, so when she died, did she go to hell with the demons as if someone's going to come back? Like, uh, yeah, no, she did. Uh, she went there immediately. They took her, uh, they, they tied her down. They put her on a demon sled. They dragged her down to the 14th level where you get taken. If you die during an exorcism, uh, you stay there for 500 years, uh, right on the dot, 500 years. Exactly. Then uh, you get brought to purgatory. Uh, your salvation case is evaluated by a, by a heaven judge. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why would you ask that? Do you, how could anyone answer that? Do people, do people ask that expecting a real answer? Uh, Tarinka14 asks what I think is the smartest question in this comment feed. Uh, this person asks, I wonder if this ever happens to somebody who was not raised in a strictly religious household. Like if somebody who never grew up even knowing there is such a thing as religion uh, like, or demons. Uh, I wonder that too. I mean, probably pretty hard to find somebody 
who uh, isn't familiar with any. I mean, I guess you have to go to like some uh, some some tribe of people, but I feel like even like the tribes have like witch doctors. Um, but I do wonder about that. Like, like, like are demonic possessions limited to people with, uh, you know, a strong familiarity with religion? You know, uh, if so, if that's the only people that afflicts, I feel like that would cast some doubt on its reality. I, I got to try and remember to look into that in part two. And, and we'll end on Steel Perfect's comment, the, the funniest one in the thread to me that said, I immediately thought, who knows what burnt feces smells like? That is a great point. Like, like how does one know what burned shit smells like? That, that's like a very specific reference you're making. Like, I mean, I feel like we, we've all smelled shit. We've all smelled it. We've all, you know, produced and smelled it. I smelled a lot of burning things, but I've never smelled to my knowledge burn shit. Uh, I gotta, I gotta say though, now a part of me wants to go burn some shit and then smell it. Maybe that's the video I make. Maybe that's the video I make that, that, uh, truly goes viral. Maybe that's how you make a viral video. You, you burn some shit and you fucking huff it. You know, maybe I can do that. You know, just turn myself into a true idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. All right, we'll, we'll dive further into the idiot, uh, idiot of the internet comments about exorcism stuff on Monday as well. Uh, as far as current thoughts go on all of this, uh, for me, jury's still out. Jury's still out. And, uh, you know, I, I am open to believing something I get. I, I just find it interesting that, that Annalise has seen a lot of doctors, a lot of medical doctors so far. Uh, and it's not like this was in the 19th century. It wasn't that long ago. And none of them seemed like they were able to, you know, really help her at all. Uh, but I also find it interesting that she was raised in a very religious household where, you know, there, you grow up with the belief of these things being possible. Like, you know, if she hadn't been, would she have experienced any of this? You know, if, if demons are real. Also, I think, like, why, why, do, why do they pick on the religious? That, that to me seems pretty unfair. Like, why not fuck with some atheist? I mean, wouldn't their soul be easier to take, you know, possibly? You know, like there would be no God for them to cry out to for protection or they wouldn't think to cry out. Maybe that's the better answer to that. They wouldn't think to cry out to God because they wouldn't believe in a God. Uh, are some souls worth more than others to Satan? Does like does taking a righteous soul piss God off a little more than taking some dirtbag soul? I don't know. A lot to think about. A lot, a lot to think about. A lot more research to be done still. Uh, looking forward to doing it. Looking forward to finishing this two-parter. For now, let's reassess what we've already learned with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Annalise would die on July 1st, 1976. The official cause of death would be malnutrition and dehydration. But what really happened? You know, what are you learning, you know, uh, in, in this in this suck? Where are you leaning right now? Possession? Mental illness? Both? Number two, board-certified psychiatrist, professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College, Dr. Richard Gallagher, also works with priests on identifying demonic possession. And after witnessing several possessions himself, now believes in demonic possession. How scary is that? How does that possibly change your views? Number three, in addition to possession, demons can allegedly also attack humans in a way known as obsession, in which the demon fills the mind of its victims with evil thoughts. So I may have had a demon uh, stuck in my head for quite some time, and I may have a demon to thank for some of my best material as both a podcaster and as a stand-up comic. So uh, thanks, Lucifina, I guess. Number four, as her condition worsened, uh, Annalise started to smell like burnt shit. What does that smell like? Am I ever going to know for sure? And how much will I regret if I find out? Uh, number five, new info. 
Uh, remember we talked earlier about uh, exorcism actually being on the rise? Well, I found, a ve- I found a very recent article speaking to just that. The Vatican is holding a training course for priests on exorcism like right now, like today. Started on April 16th, ends tomorrow the 21st. Came about amid claims that the uh, demands for deliverance from demonic possession have greatly increased across the world. Vatican-backed International Association of Exorcists, which again represents more than 200 Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox priests, said the increase represented a pastoral emergency. According to a priest from Sicily, the number of people in Italy claiming to be possessed has tripled to 500,000 a year. Recently tripled. And an Irish priest uh, has said demand for exorcism has risen exponentially. Uh, apparently, the demand for exorcism is skyrocketing worldwide. So while you, you, uh, while you yourself, excuse me, may not believe, more and more other people clearly are considering demonic possession as a real and current threat. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, the demonic possession of Annalise Michelle, part one, in the suck pile. It's out back by the suck shed. Stage set for a creepy-ass part two on Monday. And I look forward to that immensely. Uh, thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Lindsey Cummins, Josh Krell, Jesse Dobner, the entire Time Suck team for their help. And huge thanks to the Lily Twins, Rebecca and Sarah, those OG members of the Bojangles Research Department for crushing it on the research yet again. On Monday, we dig into the meat of the story, all the exorcism details that became the basis for the 2005 horror film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Shit gets crazy. And now let's find out what you suckers have been thinking about this past week and hear that awesome Westboro Baptist Church song uh, sent in by time sucker and musician Larry Hooper with some time sucker updates. Updates? Get your time sucker updates. Hilarious Westboro Baptist Church update and quick Norse mythology update sent in from a Swedish time sucker, David Front. Uh, hopefully I'm saying your name right, uh, correctly. Front? Uh, Front. Uh, David writes in saying, Greetings from Sweden, oh, the lord of the suck, commander of the space lizards, fondler of Bojangles is nuts. I like it. Uh, he who cometh the likes of ten cometh of wisdom unto our brains and into our minds. First of all, thank you for a great podcast. It's a savior on my commute to work and on walks through the forest surrounding my home. I love knowing that someone out in Sweden, I mean, I, I, based on stats, I know there's quite a few people actually in Sweden, but I just, I love just thinking about you out in Sweden where I've been wanting to go for a long time, just listening to Time Suck. It makes me feel so good. Uh, I love learning uh, new things and your podcast is always interesting regardless of the topic. I listened to the WBC episode and I remember that a few years ago when a Swedish minister uh, Ake Green was convicted of hate crime slash hate speech for claiming gays to be a cancer on society. He was later deemed not guilty by our Supreme Court. The WBC started protesting against Sweden. They had God hates Sweden signs, signs with pictures of our princess and the word whore written over her and other priceless classics. The reason I wanted to tell you this is not because they protested Sweden. That fits their MO perfectly. Now, the funny part, and I agree. We were laughing about this so hard in the Suck Dungeon yesterday, me, uh, Josh, and Lindsay. Uh, the funny part is that it's hard to protest Sweden in the United States. I mean, where do you go? Who cares? <laughs> like, who cares about the protest? They ended up picketing outside of an electronics store. <laughs> I 
that was selling, among other things, Swedish vacuum cleaners of the brand Electrolux. I didn't know that was a Swedish uh, brand, by the way. And, and, he, and he writes, side note, fucking fantastic vacuum cleaners. They are. I've, I've, had, I've had one. They are. I can't imagine how the store owners felt trying to wrap their heads around this or how the WBC thought it would make us less gay-loving in Sweden. That is ridiculous. Thought you would be amused as I was upon hearing this. Oh, highly. Uh, I hope you make it to Scandinavia on tour sometime. Me too. It would be great to catch you live. Keep spreading the suck, uh, David. And then P.S. on the Norse mythology show, you talked about Snorri Sturluson from Iceland. Today, however, in Sweden, the word Snorri is uh, mostly used as a slang term for dick. Uh, this, is <laughs> this is important information as penises are almost always funny unless sent to an unsuspecting person on Snapchat. Oh, well, th- <laughs> thank you, David. Uh, I'm glad you got some extra comedy out of that episode. And that is very funny. Uh, yeah, that's like the saddest protest ever, ever. Like, why couldn't they find a fucking Ikea? Isn't, uh, wouldn't that be, uh, make a little more sense? I just love this random, like, they were like, ah, there's no, there's no Ikea near Topeka, Kansas. So I guess we got to go to this poor little electronic store selling vacuum cleaners. Uh, what the employees must've been like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Oh God, I wish they would do something like that around here. Uh, okay. Keeping with the international theme, we have a time suck 80, uh, gun update from UK time sucker, uh, Stuart McIntosh. Uh, and he writes, and I feel like I messed up. Sorry when I was, uh, yeah, it is Stuart. I, me- I, I messed up when I copied the name onto my document and cut off a letter. So I was like, is his name Start? No, it is Stuart. Sorry, I just wanted to get your attention because I'm sure you've had an email uh, on this subject, he, he writes. And, uh, oh, and he writes that because he, uh, he wrote, and I'm going to pull it up right now. He wrote a crazy email subject that I didn't have the initial notes. I'm just going to pull it up right now. He wrote, don't ignore me. I gave up guns uh, to argue safety with you. Okay, so that that is the the title. And he says, sorry, I just want to get your attention. I'm sure you get a lot of emails on this subject. He says, first, uh, please allow me to say greetings, O exalted Lord of the Suck. I'm embarrassed to say I've only followed the great Nimrod for the last six months. Ah, man, I don't, I don't fucking care if you followed it for a day. I just love that you're following it. Uh, but my eyes have been forcibly opened by Bojangles <laughs> and seduced by Lucifina's wily charms. I would like to congratulate you on the America's Guns, a well-balanced argument for and against, and the first time I've heard anyone in any position explain rationally that it may not be as simple as throwing all the guns into the sun like Superman 4. Great fucking reference. And living in the rainbow utopia they believe will suddenly exist. For that matter, the weird militia standpoint that staunch supporters of the Second Amendment think will protect them from laws put into play by the government. Anyway, the reason I write is because I was once a shooting enthusiast taking part in the pistol and rifle competitions all over the UK from the age of around 13 to 21. I was pretty good at it, especially for the age of 18 to 21. I really felt like I'd found the hobby I always wanted to do, you know, plowing time and money or putting time and money into the sport. Then the Dublin massacre happened, 16 kids at school and their teacher murdered by Thomas Hamilton, legal gun owner. Gun laws in the UK were already tight, especially after the Hungerford incident in the 80s. You had to be vetted by the police before you could be provided with a firearms license. All guns and ammunition had to be detailed in advance on your license. This meant uh, you want a 9mm, it had to be authorized to be on there along with the maximum amount of ammunition you were allowed to hold. You had to have a secure place to store both guns and ammunition separately. Also had to be vetted in advance by the firearms officer uh, assigned to your case. post Dublin or Dunblane, excuse me. An inquiry was set up and the decision made to tighten the gun laws in the UK massively. Uh, You were told to attend the police station on a particular date and hand all and any guns and ammunition you had, which would then be destroyed. And the government gave you a small compensation for this, 
which is probably about a tenth of the amount I spent in the first place. That sucks. So they didn't do it like Australia, uh, which, you know, at least gave like market value. The reason I'm telling you this is that the gun crime rates did not change because law-abiding gun owners were forced to give up their support. Criminals can still get their hands on firearms if they want, regardless of the mandatory five-year prison sentences uh, handed out for people possessing illegal firearms. It also did not stop a Cumbrian taxi driver of killing 12 people on a shooting spree in 2010 using a legally owned shotgun. Uh, while we can remove the tool that assists the killer, it never takes away the want to kill in the first place. Anyway, that's enough from me. I love the suck. I wish I could attend one of your events, but being way over here in Scotland would make it difficult. And the constant threat of Chikatilo finding me and making me his personal finger puppet means I have to stay under the radar. I am proud to call myself your humble servant. Keep on sucking. Stuart McIntosh. Thank you, man. God, I would love to get over to Scotland too. Oh, I really hope I can pull off some international touring one of these days. And, uh, and I just wanted to include that because, yeah, again, I know we're all in disagreement on this, but it's just something that, uh, you know, okay, we do some more um, gun re- regulation. Okay, fine. But I, I just do worry, as Stewart does, that it's not going to fix things like some people hope it will. Uh, and again, because of that, you know, what you wrote, it doesn't take away the want to kill in the first place. Where, where is that coming from? Why is that on the rise? Okay. We have a pair of lost books, uh, a, a pair of lost book of the Bible updates from American time sucker Juan Martinez. His first one, suck master flex. I tried to let it go. I did. I was just going to gloss it over. But if I don't send in this update, my, my head might explode. You mentioned the Catholic Church more than once, and I think it's important to note that in the context of the early church fathers, it did not mean Roman Catholic as we know as, uh, know of it today. Uh, know it today. Catholic in that context meant universal. The Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, who, by the way, are vehemently opposed to about 95% of what the Roman Catholics preach, is still recite the Nicene Creed. The Creed is incredibly long, longer than I'm sure you care to read, but it basically says, I believe in one God, one Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we skip a lot here in the in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Prior to 1054, there was only one church. The Romans and the Orthodox, for lack of a better word, uh, factions split over the way Rome said the creed. Uh, both sides excommunicated each other and didn't reconcile until the 1960s. But they still aren't a Catholic church in the correct sense of the word. Sorry that got long-winded. I'm just really passionate about the Orthodox teachings, and I love gaining and sharing knowledge. Suck it, Juan Martinez. Thank you, Juan. No, I didn't. I mean, there is so much to learn. The history is so complex, so many details, and it's just long, you know, a couple thousand years, so many twists and turns. Thanks for uh, sending us another update. That that has been a surprisingly popular episode. Um, surprising to me. I just didn't realize it would be uh, so so downloaded. Also, of course, some pronunciation help, of course. Regarding the biblical son of Isaac mentioned in both the Bible and the lost books, uh, Juan wrote, uh, Master Sucker, the name you are struggling with uh, is Esau. That's that E-S-A-U, excuse me, E-S-A-U. It's pronounced Esau. It's a weird-ass word for sure, but that's the correct, correct, excuse me, pronunciation. Suck on that, Juan Martinez. I think I pronounced it Esau in the episode, so Esau. It does look like Esau, but yeah, Esau. Okay, cool. I like I like getting those. Uh, and now, now that Larry Hooper WB song I mentioned earlier, Larry sent me an email with the subject line a while back of, I wrote a song about the bastards at WBC. And it, and it said in the in the email, so I wrote a song about the Westboro Baptist Church. It, I put it on a CD. I put it out back in 2011. It's not a love song. Hope you like it. Suck it out. And well, I, I more than liked it, Larry. I loved it. It's called Heaven or Hell, a uh, song for the Westboro Baptist Church. And if you like it, head over to hoopersongs.com. You can also find his stuff on iTunes and elsewhere. He's got two full albums out on iTunes. He's got some cool T-shirts. He sent me one. Uh, his albums are Between Here and the Stars, No Turning Back. And, uh, and this little ditty will just take us on out of today's updates. So thank you, Time Suckers, and hit it, Larry. Thank you. 
Thank you for that wonderful update. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's all today, time suckers and space lizards. I hope this got you excited for Monday's episode. I'm excited. Uh, If you smell like uh, burned shit, uh, go see a doctor. And maybe a priest and a pastor as well. And keep on sucking.
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.